had been selecting songs for this service personally. If I had personally selected those, I couldn't have done any better. In fact, um, I one of the songs that I and we'll we'll close. Uh, they're going to do one of those songs again and close the service for us. Um, I was trying to figure out uh, a right, proper song, the best song to, to close the service. I came up with a list of three songs that I would be interested in. The very top of the list was Break Every Chain. Now, unbeknownst to me, uh, John and I were talking after the first service, found out that that was not originally in their plan to sing. Uh, this morning. In fact, they had put it all together, practiced and, and all of that, and that was not one of the songs they were going to sing. Uh, coming in this morning, Pastor uh, and John were looking at it, and, and they, uh, uh, they were saying that, you know, uh, the, your lead pastor said to John that, I think we need to add another song. And then John thought about it and said, well, you know, let's add, let's add this song, Break Every Chain. That, again, was the first song on my list of songs that I wanted to close this service with. And it's just like, okay, Lord, you are up to something incredible. Uh, you're planning this. Now, why does that surprise us? You know, it's like, you know, that's what you would expect. You know, you know, the God that we serve, you would think, hey, that's, that's the kind of thing that he would do. But every time he does it, we sit back and we, just, we you know, we just, we're in awe. That God is working ahead of us, moving ahead of us, planning ahead of us. He's doing things, preparing us for the moment that we're in. Well, I believe that he's not just done that with the songs. And he's not just done that with my heart and the things that I want to share. But he's done that with you today. He's brought you to this moment for a reason, for a purpose. You're here uh, for God to do something incredible in your life. He has been preparing you for this very moment. And so we want to just really see him work in our midst. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. One of the things that uh, you might pray uh, for is that I don't fall off this platform. I almost did it in the first service. Uh, you know, so, you know, uh, hopefully in the second service, I've now learned where the edges are and, and I, I won't have that issue this time. But let's pray that God would come and move in us in a very special way. Father, we are truly grateful for your presence. We're thankful for the fact that you are here with us. And that you have prepared this service. You have prepared us. You have prepared this moment. You have brought all the circumstances together in just the right way, in just the right order. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that I've had to prepare to speak. But now, most importantly, I ask for your anointing upon me as I speak. That I would speak your words in your way, in your fashion, the way that you want them to be spoken. Lord, everything that comes from you, may it be, go deep in the heart of everyone that's here. Father, I pray not just that you would anoint me, but I pray that you would also anoint your people. Your Spirit would fall upon them. That your Holy Spirit would whisper into their ears. That you would anoint them that they might hear from you. Lord, we need your presence. 
the blessed name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. He was 17, and he was in trouble. By all accounts, it was because of his own impertinence. He was young, immature, and shown a great deal of disrespect to his stepmother and his younger half-brother. The chaos that he had created in his home led to his father kicking him out of the house. And now he was in trouble. Unfortunately, that story is repeated countless times across the United States every single day. Oh, it might not be a 17-year-old boy. It might be an 18-year-old girl or 16-year-old girl. It might be some other situation even younger, where they get kicked out of one house and into another, uh, and another part of the family tries to care for them. I just wonder, since the beginning of 2018, how many times that story has been repeated right here in Grant County? How many young individuals Not that they're totally innocent. Not that they haven't done things that have led to their getting kicked out of the house. Not that they are really doing everything right. But nevertheless, the family situation has become so intolerable that they've been asked to leave. How many times in Marion, Gas City, Jonesboro, across this county, as it happened this year. Well, in the particular instance that I'm referring to, this young boy was in very deep trouble. He and his mother, his real mother, were both now homeless. They did the only thing they knew what to do, They went out into the wilderness around them and tried to find a way to stay alive. As we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 24 and verse number 9, sorry, and verse number 15, we find that Hagar and Ishmael have been wandering in the desert. And in verse 15 of chapter 21 of Genesis, it says this. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away. For she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat down opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from the heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do you not fear? For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with the water, 
and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, we picked up in the middle of that story, but the beginning of that story is exactly what I described. You see, we find here that Ishmael was the son of Abraham, but by his wife's servant. You remember the story? Abraham was old. Sarah was old. They weren't having children. And Sarah came up with the idea that maybe they could have a child through her handmaiden. And so she gave her handmaiden to uh, Abraham as a second wife. And so Ishmael was born. Now, the interesting thing about this scripture (coughs) here is that Ishmael is never mentioned by name. We pick up in verse 9. It says, Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. He's called there the son of Hagar. He's called elsewhere the lad. (coughs) Excuse me. But he is never referred to by name. Now, Ishmael got his name because... If you remember, when he was, uh, actually before he was born, uh, when uh, Hagar had become pregnant, uh, Sarah begins to struggle with it from the very beginning. And and it was her idea that this would happen, but she felt like that once Hagar got pregnant, that that Hagar was kind of looking on her with disdain, and uh, Sarah became very um, harsh toward uh, Hagar, and Hagar had actually left the area, and it tried to go away. And she was out in the wilderness again in trouble, and she began to pray. And God spoke to her there in the wilderness that time. And she names Ishmael. The name means God hears. God hears. When we're in the midst of our troubles, God hears. God hears. But here, this name isn't even mentioned. He's just referred to as as the lad or the son of, of Hagar. The very fact that God hears has been forgotten. Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne uh, to Abram, mocking. He was mocking, most likely he was mocking Isaac. Isaac had uh, just been weaned. He was just a lad of maybe two or three years old. We don't know exactly what kind of mocking it, uh, it was. We, we do know that the word in Hebrew for mocking is also the word for playing. You know, maybe he was just uh, you know, kind of uh, playing around and got a little carried away. And uh, you know how sometimes in siblings our, our play very quickly turns to someone getting angry and, and there's a problem that comes out of everybody's happy and laughing and suddenly there's a fight that breaks out because the play gets a little too serious. It gets a little uh, too rambunctious. But we find Sarah looking on and when she sees it, she t- uh, understands that it's turned to a mocking and rather than just a playful activity that was going on. And so in verse 10 it says, Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son. For the son of this maid shall not be heir 
with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of this lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and uh, took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and he gave her the boy and sent them away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Regardless of whose fault it was, whether it was Ishmael being mocking or whether he was just trying to be playful, the reality is he got kicked out of the house and now they were homeless and they had wandered the wilderness and were about to die. When I read the scripture, I'm reminded of John chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. I don't suppose there's anything that's more hurtful than being rejected by your family. And that's exactly what had happened in this moment. They had been rejected. They were homeless. They were wandering, trying to uh, survive, trying to make ends meet, and things were not coming together. As the family had broken apart, their lives were being destroyed. And they were experiencing the pain of rejection. But it wasn't long until that pain of rejection turned into a more serious pain because they didn't have the food supplies they needed. They didn't have the water supplies they needed. They were depleted and they were about to die. That pain had erased the pain of perhaps the rejection because now their life was in danger. They were in serious danger indeed. Now, I don't know why the 17-year-old boy was the one that's collapsing first. You would have thought that in his youth he would have outlasted his mother in the desert. But for some reason, he seems to be the one that's dying first. And uh, Hagar puts him under the shade of a shrub, trying to give some relief from the heat of the wilderness that they were wandering in. Knowing that he's going to die and knowing that she's about to die, it says she goes a a bow's length away, you know, the the length that you could shoot an arrow, probably about 100 yards or so. And she sits down to die herself. But she distances herself from her son because she doesn't want to see the agony of his death. And she begins to cry out. And that's when God hears. Ishmael's name again, God hears. An angel comes to Hagar, and she hears his voice. And the angel says, I have heard the lad crying. And it gives Hagar instruction to get up, to go where the lad's at, to lift him up, and to hold him by the hand. Now, God is intervening, but I want you to see who God is using to intervene in the life of this dying lad. Who does he choose? The lad's dying mother. 
Now, you would have thought that if there was to be a rescue here, that it would be, you know, some people riding in on a camel or some other uh, dramatic uh, uh, story of rescue of, of people who were strong and able to come in and provide the help that was assistance that was needed. But instead, God chooses to intervene. God chooses to help. <coughs> Excuse me. God chooses to help through a woman herself who was in need of help. God doesn't choose always the strong to help the weak. God doesn't choose those who have got it all together to rescue those who are falling apart. God sometimes chooses those of us who ourselves are struggling, those of us who ourselves are weak, those of us who ourselves are trying to survive. He chooses us to be the rescuer. And he tells Hagar to get up and to go. I wonder what would have happened if Hagar had not listened. If she would have just said to the Lord, you know, to the angel that was speaking to her, you know, I'm too weak. I'm about to die. I have no resources. Well, you know, I don't want to see my son uh, in, in all of his agony. I'm just going to sit here and die. I think the story would have had a much different ending if she hadn't played her part in the rescue. But she got up and followed through and she went to the lad's rescue. And then it says very interestingly that the Lord opened her eyes and she saw the well. Now there's no indication that God had miraculously brought a well here. Everything about the Scripture would convince us that the well was already there. But they hadn't seen it. The Lord opened her eyes that the well was present. Now, the wells were not necessarily as prominently displayed as what you and I might think in our minds. We might think of, uh, you know, a well with a nice stone wall around it and maybe some apparatus so you can lower down a bucket and get at it. It probably wasn't that it was probably more, uh, you know, just level to the ground with a stone kind of over top of it to keep animals out and, you know, to keep, uh, you know, debris from falling down in it. But it probably wasn't terribly difficult to see, maybe not as prominent as we would imagine, but she should have been able to recognize the fact that a well was there. But they hadn't seen the well. They were both sitting down to die with the life-giving water just a few yards away. Somehow in my mind, I imagine the well being between where Hagar was and Ishmael, maybe off to the side a little bit. So if Hagar was 100 yards away, I think the well was probably only 50 or 60 yards from where they were. In my mind's eye, I can see if they'd actually died there that uh, day. Within the next few days, when somebody else came to the well, they'd have found these dead bodies near the well, and wondered why. Why had they not gone to the well? Why had they not uh, uh, got the life-giving water that was there and available to them? Why had they just had star, or, or, you know, died of thirst when the water was right there within reach? Why indeed? Why indeed do people every day around those who know Jesus Christ die without his life-giving living water. 
There are people in the shadow of churches throughout Grant County who are need in much great need of the life-giving water of Jesus Christ who really need to be rescued. They really need to have their chains broken. They really need their lives to be set on the right track. They really need what God can give them. They really need to be changed from within. They are dying spiritually and they'll die spiritually without ever being touched by the life-giving water. They literally could step out from their homes and throw a stone and hit the church. But they're dying without Jesus Christ. Why is it that people who see the church, they see the cross, they know the stories, they're living within the shadow of the church, within the influence of the church, within the reach of the church. They could get... Uh, in their car or walk to the church in five minutes or less. But they'll die without knowing Jesus. Why is it? Because their eyes have not been opened to the fact that there's living water that's present there and near us. And again, it's not always the strong. It's not always the, the Christian who has it all together. It's not always the one whose life is in order. It's not always the one who's living uh, you know, exactly where the Lord wants them to be that God chooses to use to take and rescue those who are in danger. He used Hagar, who herself was dying, to take the water to the lad. But she had to have her eyes opened first. She had to recognize that God wanted to use her. She had to recognize that the water was there. She had to recognize that everything that was needed was within her reach. And I believe we as the church of Jesus Christ need to have our eyes fully open to the fact that God wants to use us. God wants us to become the men and women that He intends. But as we are on the way toward becoming what God wants us to be, why we still have hang-ups, why we still have problems, why we still have difficulties in always serving Him and being faithful to Him and having a belief that He's going to care for every problem in our lives, while we're still a mess, God still wants to use us to make a difference in the lives of the people that are around us. God has a plan for us. And there are people everywhere. People that are really struggling. I'm reminded uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 that Jesus looked up and He saw the people. Everywhere around Him, people in distress and people that were discouraged. You know what he said about them once he saw them in their difficulties, when he saw them in their struggles, when he saw them with all their problems? He turned to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful. You know, there's just something about being in difficulty in your life that makes you open to the message of Jesus Christ. 
There's something about being in need. There's something about struggling in life. There's something about being discouraged. There's something about really struggling that causes people to be more open to the gospel than any other time. And he looked up and he saw the people being discouraged and he said, the harvest is plentiful. But he said, there's a problem. The workers are few. The workers are few. There's not enough people out there telling them about me. There's not enough people out there sharing the gospel. There's not enough people out there taking a cup of cold water. There's not enough people out there recognizing that the water is nearby. There's not enough people that are going to the lad and and lifting him up and holding him by the hand and getting a cup of water and giving that life-giving water to them. The workers are few. Do you know what he told his disciples right then? Of course you do. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. That he send forth workers. Are we praying that prayer? At WGM, we've taken what we call the 10-2 challenge. That same passage that I spoke to you about in Matthew chapter 9 also appears in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Um, and uh, it, again, it says, the, you know, the, the Lord speaking about the Harvest being plentiful, but the workers are few. And pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send forth workers. So we've taken the 10-2 challenge. I have my, my cell phone and many of those at World Gospel Mission, we've taken our cell phone. You know, you can set an alarm on your cell phone to ring the same day, same time every day. And so if you go to my cell phone, I have at 10.02 an alarm that goes off. And that alarm is to remind me to pray to the Lord of the harvest. It reminds me of Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And that, and that reminds me to pray at that point that the Lord would send forth workers. Pastor, I do it every day except for on Sundays. I don't really want the alarm going off while the pastor is preaching. So I, I do, uh, uh, I do uh, uh, not set it for Sundays. But every other day, the alarm goes off. I would encourage you. To do the same thing with your phone. Just set it for 10.02. And when the alarm goes off, just pray that God would send forth workers. Because there are people everywhere who are struggling with life. And someone needs to carry the living water to them. And we are given the responsibility to pray that God would raise up those workers. Those workers for here in Grant County, those workers for across the United States, those workers for around the world. And you've sent the Metses to Uganda and Tiffany to India. And there's places that you've sent uh, global partner missionaries. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest that he sent forth workers. I was in Honduras. Uh, the end of last year. We have a ministry there through World Gospel Mission that ministers to uh, homeless children. It provides education for them. Um, uh, they, um, you know, they don't have much opportunity. I mean, obviously, as homeless, there's very, uh, virtually no opportunity for them to be in school. And so we provide education. Uh, and through that training... 
you know, it gives them a chance to have a real opportunity once they're adults. When I was visiting the school, a couple of the missionaries took me down the street from the school to show me where some of their students lived. There were three boys that were attending the school. They lived in this home. I guess it would be more appropriately called a shack. Uh, the only reason they had this shack as a shelter was the owner of the property had equipment uh, on that property, and he basically had hired the boys to sleep there at night to try to deter uh, thieves from coming in and stealing the equipment. This home that they were living in had no front door, no windows, uh, I mean, no glass in the windows. It had two, a couple windows, a front door and a back door that I, I you know, that we were able to observe there was no electricity in the home, there, you know, so there was, there was no refrigeration. There was nothing to keep food in. There was no running water, so there was no toilet or anything in their home. In fact, to get it, there was a, run, a running stream. To get to it, there was a running stream between the road and that, and there was no bridge across that stream. They just had to walk through the water to get to their house. People all over the world are living in situations of trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, you may have noticed that I purposefully didn't finish that verse in John chapter 16, verse 33, the first time I read it. For as it goes on, it says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, people are living in trouble. Yes, uh, this life is full of trouble. And, and Jesus has told us that that will be our lot in this world. But he also tells us to take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the trouble. I have overcome the difficulties. I have the answers. I am the one that can give life and can give answers and can change situations. And he's given that assignment to us as the church to be the ones to carry that message to the world. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has given us the assignment as the church that we are to take the gospel message to the world. I will build my church. He wants to build up His church, you, His people. He wants to build us up. Now, I want you to notice that it says He will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, have you ever thought about that really closely? We Most of the time, we think about that verse and we say, you know, we think of it as God protecting the church. That, you know, the, the, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against us. Think about it clearly, logically, right now. Think about it. Have you ever seen anybody pick up a gate and charge against someone else? Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive weapons. So the gates of hell are all about protecting hell. Satan has got people deceived, and he's got them imprisoned, and he's built up gates to try to keep the gospel message out. But God has told us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
God, this is a message about Satan is trying to keep people in his prisons. He's trying to keep people messed up. He's trying to keep people in trouble. They are, and he's got them behind his walls. He's got them behind gates. Trying to keep the church out. But the gates of hell are not powerful enough. They are not strong enough. They cannot withstand the church that is being obedient to Jesus Christ. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The only way the gates of hell can withstand is if we don't charge against them. Satan has convinced us that the church is weak. He's convinced us the church in America is getting weaker. He's convinced us that, the, you know, there's nothing we can do. He's convinced us that we can't deliver people from drugs. He's convinced us that we can't deliver people from bad marriages. He's convinced us that we can't deliver people from the troubles that they find themselves in. He's, he's a roaring lion that's tried to scare us into inactivity. And we sit back as we watch people walk into the gates, through the gates of hell and into his prison. And we do nothing. We don't do nothing because we don't care. We do nothing because we are convinced there's nothing we can do. But the Bible clearly tells us, Jesus clearly tells us, I will build my church. It will be a powerful church. It will be a church that can't be withheld. It will be a church that can't be stopped. And Satan will put up his gates and try to keep us out. But the gates of hell shall not prevail. 